0: I'm Tony Epstein, and this is a special Magical Mystery Tour, Ethereal, the Possibilities of a Floating Particle of Dust. And today, our guest is Sky Nelson Isaacs, a theoretical physicist, physics educator, and musician with a master's degree in physics from San Francisco State University with a thesis in string theory and a bachelor of science in physics from UC Berkeley. Skye has dedicated his life to finding his own sense of purpose, beginning as a student of Swami Satchidananda around the age of five, and he's the author of a fascinating and audacious new book, Living in Flow, The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World, a book that looks to quantum mechanics to help explain synchronicity and offers a provocative new hypothesis that the cosmos may be designed to bring us meaningful, synchronistic experiences in response to the choices we make and the intentions and sense of purpose we bring to our lives. Sky Nelson Isaacs, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Tonyo. It's great to be here. I'm very happy to talk about this material. It's very fascinating to me.
0: Yes, it is fascinating, and I'm really, really excited to have you on the show and to talk with you about all of this stuff, and especially to get to talk with you as a theoretical physicist about quantum mechanics and in the context of the science of synchronicity. So I would love to begin with your background, and I'm fascinated by you becoming a student of Sachidananda's when you were around the age of five and what that experience was like for you as a child and growing up and how that has helped to inform your world view.
1: Well, my parents were students of Sachin Ananda and, and I grew up in that community, not in the community, I grew up at home. My parents lived out here in Northern California. We had our community, our own house, like like everyone uh, in, in around us, but we did travel to see Sashantananda when he would come speak in San Francisco. And we spent a couple of summers in Virginia at an ashram that he had founded there. And when I look back on it, I was really immersed in his worldview from that early, early age and was surrounded by books like the Bhagavad Gita, his translation of that. I found the Tao Te Ching in early high school and became really enamored with that. I was also enamored with things like the Lord of the Rings. So <laughs> it wasn't just a spiritual path that was sort of what you might categorize as a traditionally spiritual path, but Ananda's perspective was that truth is one and paths are many. Truth is one, paths are many. So each of us can have our own path to finding what, what I would call you know, our own sense of inner expression, of authentic expression. But ultimately, that's what we're trying to get, to, to find out who we really are at our core. And what I've found is that that, that comes underneath layers of conditioning, uh, of reactions that I've developed in response to the experiences of my life. And when I'm younger, those responses are not necessarily healthy. Like, I just learn to react in order to solve my immediate problem. Maybe I'm afraid I'm going to be judged by my peers, and so I learn to, to hide my authentic skills or my, my, what I really want to say. And then gradually, over time, the spiritual path is peeling those back and, and relearning how to speak honestly and truthfully and wholeheartedly. So, being around Satchidananda was just like being immersed in an ultimate perspective of like, look, this is where this is what we're trying to achieve in life, and there's lots of different paths to it. And like I said, you know, something like Lord of the Rings can be a path. That, that was Tolkien's path to finding his own inner expression and authenticity. Uh, it's, it's not like you have to follow a, a yogic path in order to get to a deeper sense of who you are spiritually. And so that was one of the things that his yogic path taught me, was that it's not the only path. It's a, it's a doorway that can be used and a set of tools that can be used to get there, but truth is one, paths are many. So it's very impactful for me in my underlying worldview.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's a synchronicity right there because one of my favorite guests on the show did a Ph.D. thesis correlating the work of Tolkien and Carl Jung. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. It, I
1: like it's,
0: read that. it's very, very cool. I haven't read the thesis yet, but this woman's presentation and what she talks about is, is utterly fascinating and, and wonderful. And I have to say, the Tao Te Ching and Taoism was my first... Love my first spiritual love, when I was in high school and then into college. Wonderful. So how did you get interested in quantum mechanics?
1: Well, let's see. There was a bit of a strange synchronicity. I say a strange synchronicity. It's actually just a kind of normal experience of how we follow the path of our life. In college, I started at Berkeley as a music major because I was passionate about music, and I actually spent the last year of high school taking only music classes and skipping out on math and other stuff. So I thought I was going to be a musician for my career. And in the first year of college, to be a musician, and there was a jazz program there that I was part of, you have to practice all the time. So we're talking, you know, many, many hours a day in order to keep up. And I started to have repetitive stress injuries. So my hands were not able to do what I needed them to do to practice. And it wasn't totally brand new for me that that was happening, but it became really acute and I couldn't, I couldn't keep up. So I realized, and and, and I had other interests, you know, music wasn't the only thing. It was like music has been a part of my life, my whole life. And I I really have to do it in order to feel fulfilled, but it's not the only thing that, that brings me fulfillment. You know, the spiritual path was ultimately really something important to me. And, Computers have always always been fascinating to me. I've always been into video games and computer science programming. And I had taken physics in in my senior year in high school and really liked it, really been into it. And ultimately, the the quest to understand the nature of myself and the nature of the cosmos, the spiritual quest we were just talking about, showed up in my, my physics class because we were talking about space and time and light and, you know, how time changes when you go close to the speed of light and all these things that really brought into question some of the same things around consciousness. What is consciousness? How is it that my, I'm here on this planet? What's my purpose? Somehow those were connected for me. And so I, I had a girlfriend at the time whose dad told me he was very impressed with all the physics majors he'd ever worked with. He was an engineer, and he said, all the physicists seem to know a lot about a lot of stuff. <laughs> and at the time, that was enough to get me motivated to try and impress him. So I over the summer, after my freshman year, I taught myself the, the intro course to physics, and then took the test at the end of the summer, and by the beginning of sophomore year of college, I was on track with the rest of the students to be a physics major. And I felt right from the first moment I started. So, Like I said, there, there's been this connection between my questions around why am I here, what is, what is life about, what's the purpose of life, and the questions that physics is asking about the cosmos. like What is space and time? What is the nature of light and gravity and the forces and, and all that stuff. It all seemed connected to me.
0: And then quantum mechanics, of course, brings in a relational aspect of all of that, bringing us as subjective individuals into the equation.
1: Right. So, so quantum mechanics, I found really disappointing in college because it really focused on the mathematics without, I felt without the understanding. So I didn't understand what I was doing, even when I was learning about Schrodinger's equation and and the other aspects. And it wasn't until after college, when I was, you know, I was in my 20s, I was exploring a lot more in the world and understanding things at a deeper level as an adult. And I found a book called The Dancing Wu Li Masters by Gary Zukov and It is a book that I really recommend today. I I think it's wonderful. He's not a physicist. He talks about the developments of quantum mechanics over the years from the perspective of someone who, for the perspective of someone who doesn't understand the science of it, but wants to understand the meaning of it, what the implications are. And there's another book that I read, uh, The Strange Story of the Quantum by Banesh Hoffman. Plus I was reading some books by Richard Feynman that he's a great popular writer. And all of that really brought into my mind a more wholesome for me understanding of what these things were about, the spiritual side of physics, you know, the, the questioning of what is reality side of physics. And so questions like the idea of Schrodinger's cat, in which the superposition of possibilities that we know exists at the microscopic level in Schrodinger's cat that gets translated up to the macroscopic level so that a cat in a box is as long as you're not observing the cat directly with your eyes or some, some other method, the cat remains in a superposition of different possible states. And it's basically intended as a, as a no-brainer refutation of quantum mechanics. This couldn't possibly be the case. But I started to understand the deeper implications of what that really was saying, and it started me on a path to trying to understand this field that we call quantum foundations, which is the field of study of quantum mechanics from the perspective of what is it really trying to tell us, not what can we calculate with it.
0: And how it relates to our human experience and existence and
1: lives. Well, that's where I take it. Uh, that's quantum foundations in general. I don't know what proportion of physicists think in the terms that you just said or in the terms that I do, but you know, quantum, quantum foundations is a practical field as well as a theoretical esoteric one. I would say a lot of folks study it because it gets us closer to a real understanding of the cosmos, but they don't necessarily connect it to their own experience or meaning or anything. That, that is what I try and do, and I think I've been successful to some extent at it.
0: Yeah, I was, I was just uh, presenting my interest in it.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, Mine as well.
0: Yeah, and my introduction to quantum mechanics was Back in the early to mid 90s, with a book called The Holographic Universe.
1: Oh, Michael Talbot, right? Yes. Great book.
0: And that, that book just blew my mind and it shifted my perspective from a more spiritual meditation background and also fully engaging in the world to looking into the science and how quantum mechanics was bridging the old dichotomy of spiritual and material and science. And that really connected very deeply for me on an intuitive level that it was like, yes, this is what I've always known on some level but had never seen anything about that in the outer world. And therefore, science, even though I loved science growing up, There was something fundamentally missing from it.
1: I can relate to that. And I read the holographic universe around that same time, too, and it really impacted me. And that idea of holography and holograms really impacted me in college. So a hologram is, if you imagine like a photograph, you put a lens in front of an object and shine light on it, the lens will focus that light into an image on a piece of photographic paper and you get a photograph. And that photograph is a two-dimensional representation of what you just saw. Well, what the lens is doing is actually, mathematically speaking, it's, it's performing a Fourier transform, which is this mathematical procedure where you mix up all of the incoming light. You thoroughly mix it. Imagine, like, you pour a bunch of ingredients into a bowl to bake a cake. You know, you put the eggs in and you put the flour in, you put the milk in, and you put the salt in, and they're all separate in the bowl. That's like the original photograph you're trying to take. Say, you know, It's a photograph of you know a light bulb, and, and that's got all the different parts of the light bulb or all the different parts of the ingredients in the bowl of the, of the cake that you're making. But then what you do with the Fourier transform, what the lens does, is it takes a spoon and it stirs all that together, and it mixes the eggs in with the flour, in with the milk, in with the salt, so that they're just completely intermixed, as fully intermixed as you could possibly get. And this is this alternate representation that we call the holographic representation. And obviously when you look at the batter, you can't tell that there's eggs and milk and flour and salt there. But you know that it's there because it's been intermixed. And that's the holographic representation. And how this shows up in the example I was giving with taking a picture or something, if you remove the lens and allow the light to just fall on your photographic paper just naturally, it stays in its what we call a holographic form and that forms an interference pattern on the film, which when you develop it is essentially capturing the original interference pattern of the light. And it can recreate the actual three dimensional structure of the object that you took a picture of. So when you look at this, people are familiar with looking at a a hologram and when you move around it to the side, you actually see different parts of what you're looking at. It's an actual 3d reconstruction and it's, it's, preserving all of the structure that you would just have when you were sitting there staring at it live. And so what Michael Talbot was saying is that that process of completely intermixing all of the physical world in order to get this holographic representation is somehow fundamental to the way the cosmos works. And that inspired the work I'm doing today, early on in college.
0: And one of the things that I remember about that in the language that I would understand better is that you you can take a piece of the film of that interference pattern and just cut a small piece off of that and shine a laser, which is light, on it and you will see like a a fractal representation of the original hole.
1: That's right. The cake analogy is a good one because if you take that batter and you just take out a portion of the batter from the side of the bowl and you put it in a cupcake tin and you bake it, it'll still bake into a cake, right? A complete whole version of what the cake would have been if you used all the batter. And in the same way, I mean, it's, in a, it's a metaphor, but in the same way when you take a hologram and you cut it in half or just take a chunk of it and you shine light on it in the same way, you get the entire image, not just the portion that you seem to have cut out. Whereas if you take a photograph and you cut out a piece of it, you only get that part of the photograph. And what you lose when you do that in the hologram is you you lose some of the resolution. Like it gets kind of blurry because what's happening is the entire hologram is contributing to all the details as a whole. And if you only take a piece of the hologram, you have essentially cut out some of the holistic information that's contributing to the details of the pattern. But you still have an image of the whole pattern itself, the whole object itself.
0: Right. And light is a fascinating thing. I remember reading or hearing that all living organisms emit photons, which are particles of light. And I think there's a theory that light is information and that organisms are continually emitting photons as a way of communicating with the world around it and with everything. And perhaps it goes beyond just living organisms. It may be all things
1: Well, I don't have, I don't take a strong stance on some of the current theories, such as that one. What I think about is, you know, the amazing thing about light is it's utterly ubiquitous. When you say, you know, being, living beings emit light, well, physicists would say, of course they do, because they're glowing, we're constantly emitting radiation across the entire spectrum, especially in like the infrared, because we give up body heat. Body heat is a form of light. Form of electromagnetic radiation, and everything is absorbing and emitting light all the time in different parts of the spectrum. Because there is just so much of it around. <laughs> I mean, we're being we're being bathed by gamma rays from other planets and from the center of the galaxy in small amounts, but they're there. And so, I guess the question that you brought up is whether, and maybe other there's some other theories about it, is whether that's used to communicate between living beings. And again, I, I don't have a stance on that because I think there's a lot we don't know, or at least that I don't know. But I think that what I'm interested in, in in the book, not to the exclusion of these other questions, is the types of communication that we know we're having or that we feel in our gut. So rather than the level of maybe unconscious communications between cells like if that's happening that's really interesting and i bet there's some truth to that but what the book focuses on is as a human being going through your life how are you communicating with people around you and life itself and how is the world communicating back to you and i think that the world is set up to communicate with us symbolically through the experiences that we have So by symbolically, I mean situations will arise which help to teach us a particular experience or a particular aspect of who we are that we want to learn. And those experiences are showing up. They're physical experiences, so they're described by physics, but they're showing up because they're reflecting up something that we're trying to achieve or or experience in our own personal lives. And that's a form of the, the cosmos actually communicating or being responsive to us.
0: That's such a a fascinating thing. Going back to my introduction where I talk about your hypothesis that the cosmos may be designed to bring us meaningful, synchronistic experiences, I would love to know what you mean by the cosmos being designed to bring us those kind of meaningful, synchronistic experiences in responses to the choices we make. And it made me think of of whether the cosmos essentially is acting as a mirror, reflecting our own sense of meaning back to us, or because we are an integral part of the cosmos, does that suggest a kind of non-locality or holographic or fractal effect?
1: I totally agree that the, the cosmos is reflecting to us our own choices, essentially, and that they show up in the form of synchronicities. So I can give you a story of synchronicity to, to get us started.
0: I would love that. And feel free to use stories any way you can. Yeah, they're useful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so we haven't even defined synchronicity yet. So. Right, uh, right, A Synchronicity is a meaningful coincidence. It's a circumstance that shows up in life that seems to reflect what's going on inside of myself or the choices that I'm dealing with in my personal life. And then some, so some external experience seems to reflect the choices I'm going through in my own personal life. And so there's this alignment, an alignment which seems meaningful, and yet we, we wonder, well, how can that be? How does, the, how does the external world know what's going on inside of me? And then we can often ascribe that to some kind of spiritual or religious experience experience. But I think that we can also understand it through the language of science. So here's an example. I was at a conference and we were designing an app for, um, it was kind of a fun experience where we were working and also at this conference site, enjoying ourselves. And in the evenings we had nights to, to play and it was a hot tub. So a couple of friends and I decided to go meet up and go to the hot tub. And it was the middle of winter, so it was pretty cold. And I went to my hotel room, and I got my towel on and my bathing suit, and I walked out into the courtyard, which was outdoors. And I figured, well, it's cold out there, but I'm about to get in the hot tub, so that's kind of fun, and I'm not going to worry about the cold. Now, I want to back up and say that I had the intention at this time of continuing to do this research and this, this work on synchronicity and how it can show up in the form of flow in our lives and i was really interested in finding opportunities to speak and talk with people at a really serious level about about this subject so that was what was in my mind as a core direction that i was heading the the chance to speak to groups of people on this so i'm on my way to the hot tub and my friend comes back from the hot tub and says guess what it's broken (laughs) (laughs) he said it's not hot and so i immediately have this set of reactions. And I think this is a really important part of how I see us developing more skills around synchronicity. So I describe a process that I call the Lorax. And the first step is the L in Lorax, listen. So here I am listening to the situation, which is that the hot tub is broken and listening to my own body reaction, which is that I'm so disappointed. I have to adjust my plans. I'm cold and I want to now just go back to my hotel room and relax and get under the covers and warm up and read a book and go to sleep. So I'm listening to the situation, but the situation is the next thing that happened is that someone across the courtyard who wasn't associated with our group in the darkness says, Hey, you should come talk to our group. We're having a meeting over here and we're just relaxing and it's the end of the evening. You should come and you'd really like us. And I had this experience of like, why is he saying that? It's so out of the blue, but I wanted to listen to the circumstance. I'm being told the hot tub isn't working and then there's this person telling me to come to their group and socialize. So I have to open my mind is the next step. Listen and then open. And when I open my mind, I I said, okay, well, I'm not just gonna say no right away, even though what I wanna do is go back to my hotel room and curl up under the covers of the book. I'm gonna open my mind to maybe that I should, or I could follow this, this new suggestion. And then the next step is to reflect And in reflecting, I remembered that I'm really trying to expand my audience and to talk with new people about the work I'm doing and find opportunities to speak. And clearly that's not going to happen by me going back to my bedroom and curling up with a book. And it might happen if I go meet some new people. So now I had to do the second R in the Lorax. The Lorax is L-O-R-R-A-X in my description of it. So the second R is release. And I had to release my attachment to what I wanted to do to be an introvert and go back to my hotel room and decided to then act accordingly to go follow this person and and join his group. So I did. I went and changed my clothes and got warm and came back out and went into their conference room. And it turns out that they were a nice group of people and I had my guitar. So I played some music with some of the folks. But when I first walked in the room, somebody said, you need to talk to Michael. And I said, I asked who Michael was, and he pointed across the room. And they didn't exactly explain why, but they said, he'll be interested in what you're doing. So a long story made short, by the end of the evening, it was finally just Michael and I in the room together. And we started talking, and it, and it was true. He had a background in physics, and he was interested in what I was doing from a spiritual perspective. And we exchanged cards at the end of the night, and he said he'd like to have me come speak for his group. So suddenly I saw how it had come full circle, and this opportunity had arisen from this listening and opening and reflecting and releasing synchronicity had shown up with the person in the courtyard who asked me to come to their group had led to the very thing that i was trying to accomplish and a second synchronicity unfolded Uh, two months later i got a call from my friend who's a member of the national speakers association and she said hey we just had a cancellation with our speaker for our group this month and i heard that you know michael well he's on our board and we're trying to decide who to hire And he immediately mentioned you and i said you know Sky, So there was this connection behind the scenes that I had no idea about and brought me full circle with that experience to another synchronicity and up having a great speaking experience with them. But this is a synchronicity because it, it's a meaningful unfolding of events, both the suggestion from the person in the courtyard that I should come to their group and also the, the connection that Michael had with my other friend from the National Speakers Association as part of his group. And both of those things together led to me actually having the the very experience I was seeking to have of a new opportunity to speak to this group.
0: So a fascinating thing about all of this is that we often have intentions and goals, and most of us have ideas about how to go about achieving them, and often very limited ideas about what we have to do to get there. And that if we let go or release some of our control over the circumstances and, and step boldly into this somewhat nebulous dynamic that the cosmos or the universe has a way of, of orchestrating things in alignment with our purpose and our intentions in what can seem like a, a magical or s- synchronous way.
1: Yeah, that is really the the main message of the book and the work that I'm doing. So we don't need to know exactly what we're supposed to do next if we're able to both be proactive and also be receptive to what's coming at us, what opportunities are showing up that may not seem obviously beneficial but can become beneficial when we look a little deeper. That's really the method of the Lorax process or paying attention to synchronicity. And the reason the book is all about flow is because when we start doing that and being receptive to the situations that come our way and also proactive about how we respond to them and what kind of things we initiate, that dance is what I think the author Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. And he talks about it as, you know, instead of being worried about being in control of life, or deciding to surrender control, and this is where I think a lot of spiritual traditions can lead to if we're not careful, is this idea that I'm just gonna surrender to my divine being. Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow being the dance between those, where we let go of the worry about whether we're in control or not. So sometimes we are in control, and sometimes we're surrendering control, and it's our ego that gets in the way of, of letting that be okay. And so it's really a path of, of identifying the ego and, and letting it go and letting go of the worry about whether we're, we're in charge or not and, and dancing with life wholeheartedly. I have a quote here from the book, actually, that I think would be applicable. There's a difference between finding our purpose and finding a sense of purpose. The first phrase implies a very big statement about life's goals. As if there's something we're supposed to be doing with our lives and we have to find the right thing. I like the second phrase better. Finding a sense of purpose. I think that the universe responds to the choices we make by bringing new events into our lives that match those choices. Therefore, each of our daily actions becomes really important. Making each action purposeful is a habit we can develop. It's like tending a garden. So we're not just focusing on one thing that we have to accomplish in life, but focusing on how we can show up in any given moment to bring a sense of purpose into what we're doing and allow synchronicities to show up, which support whatever that is, whether it's our personal life or our professional life or something else.
0: So it's really taking a broader approach to our lives.
1: Yes. I think that underlying this whole process is the core goal that we have as beings, as living beings, which is to grow. And I think to me, that means growing internally as well as obviously externally, but how do we become more whole, authentic versions of ourselves? How do we become more connected to the biggest, most open version of ourselves that we can. And so the, the inner learning and the inner, we have to uncover inner feelings that might be hidden in order to do that because those, a lot of those feelings are actually guiding the types of synchronicities that show up in our life. And part of the theory in the book is that feelings drive the events of our lives. So it's our feelings which are actually the motor which is bringing about those synchronicities into our life. And if, if we're having a lot of feelings we haven't been aware of, we might be bringing synchronicities into our life that reflect those, those hidden feelings and are f- really frustrating, like the same type of people come into our life and keep cheating us, you know, from out of money or, or whatever it might be. We keep having the same experiences over and over because we're dealing with an underlying dynamic in ourselves, a set of feelings that we haven't identified and are, are bringing the same circumstance back to us again and again.
0: This area of feelings and emotions is so fascinating and deep and powerful. This is a lot of where that old saying of know thyself comes into play, because we we all have these feelings and emotions that are buried in our subconscious, in our past, that have been buried away, probably because we were traumatized by events at a time when we weren't able to cope with them. And on the flip side of that, when we're trying to achieve things, what I've discovered is that when you peel away the layers of what's most important to us or what's most important to me, as I go deeper and deeper, I find that there's a feeling that I'm trying to achieve. It's not the outward goal because the outward goal is in order to achieve this sense of this this experience, this inner experience.
1: Right. So in order to connect science with the study of consciousness, my approach is to look at experiences as the fundamental connector so physics is the description of experiences in the physical world and consciousness is the description of experiences from a subjective internal view but if you put experiences as underneath both of those things because right now each of us each of you listening to this program is having an experience you woke up this morning and you opened your eyes and you became conscious and that was a set of experiences that started flooding into your life. So what we know is that we're always having experiences. And when you look at it that way, then you can begin to see, you can organize those experiences. Let's say I go to a dance, and a song I love comes on, and I'm trying to decide, am I gonna dance, or am I gonna kind of be shy and sit here on the side? Well, from a a physics point of view, there's very little difference between those two choices. In one case, your body is still. In the other case, it's moving a little bit. But from an experience point of view, they're really different experiences. And they can lead, and here's where synchronicity comes in, they can lead to really different outcomes. Because if you do start to dance a little bit, you might find that someone else who you don't know notices you and then you realize that you do know them and they realize they do know you you because you notice each other because you were dancing. And then you might form a connection that you wouldn't have made it otherwise. You know, Maybe you know each other from work, or maybe you have friends in common and you recognize each other, and a whole chain of events or a whole branching tree of possibilities unfolds from that meeting that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't moved your body a little bit to dance to the music. So the physical circumstances are almost the same, if we just describe it with equations, but when you look at the macroscopic level, those different experiences are a very meaningful choice. And by meaningful choice, what I mean is the choice to dance or not to dance leads to a branching of this tree that I think describes all the possibilities in our lives. And the branching of this tree is very significant at that point because if you go one way and you dance, you have a whole set of experiences where you meet someone that changes your life. If you go the other way and you don't dance, your life stays pretty much as it was.
0: So in other words, on one branch where you, don't, where you choose not to dance, there are no possibilities that can emerge from that in the immediate future, whereas when you make the choice to dance, all of a sudden a whole area opens up full of possibilities.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and on either branch there are possibilities that are interesting, but it's really about which has more possibilities that are interesting. And then we have to be really careful not to layer a judgment on it. Like for some people, they're really outgoing and are going to dance at every song. And that's not their challenge. And again, this is about what's the inner work we're trying to do in the world. So for some people, it may be more powerful to let someone else have some space to dance and and have the light shining on them. Or in a meeting, it might be really more powerful for me to speak up in a meeting, but it might be more powerful for someone else to learn how to leave space for others or to listen better. So it's really about what's our growth edge? What's the edge of our comfort zone? And when we do that, I think those choices are really meaningful in the sense that one branch of possibilities leads off in a very new direction that has lots of new opportunities that are very interesting for that person, and the other branch doesn't. And so these are what I would call bold actions. Bold actions are actions that stretch us in our comfort zone or out of our comfort zone and help us grow into a more wholesome version of ourselves where we're not, you know, we don't think of ourselves as that person who always raises their hand or that person who never raises their hand. We think of ourselves as the person who knows how to get in the flow of when to raise my hand and when not to, when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate. So I'm not holding myself back anymore, but I'm also not doing the opposite. I'm finding that middle of that sweet spot. Flow is about finding the sweet spot.
0: And there's that old saying that the universe favors the bold, but it's not just boldness for boldness sake, it's boldness in service of or in alignment with our our sense of purpose as opposed to just kind of reckless boldness
1: yes that's right and only we can know that so one of the important things about synchronicity which is i think the last line of the book is ultimately it's a reflection for you of yourself and your own meaning in the world And no one else can tell you whether something's a synchronicity or not. You know, you can both kind of look with awe if you recognize something like, how did this person meet me in the middle of some other city? How did we run into each other? We might both agree that that's synchronistic, but there's other things that I might say, well, it's really meaningful to me that that idea showed up in my life today. And someone else might say, oh, that's not meaningful at all. Ultimately, it's uh, checking in with what's appropriate for me in my path of learning, what's gonna help me understand myself and and get to wholeness better.
0: And what occurred to me, what came up for me was in our inner subjective experience of life and perspective of the world, we all have very, very different experiences. And in the outer world, we assume that we're all experiencing the same outer reality. And the notion of quantum uncertainty and the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment which seems to suggest the relational nature of our own unfolding cosmos in relation to the observer. I'm wondering, as we engage with the cosmos around us in a kind of co-creative, interactive relationship, does that mean that each person collapses the world in a different way, the outer world?
1: Well, the first thing we have to let go of in the work, the way that I see the world, is the idea of an objective, definite reality. So a lot of folks, when they talk about you know, anything is possible, or in some kind of you know, mystical sense, you know, the sense of infinite possibilities, I don't like that term, infinite possibilities, because there aren't infinite possibilities. The possibilities are based on what's happening for me right now, and I'm doing something very finite. But it still is a vast, realm of possibilities doesn't have to be infinite to be important (laughs) so there's a vast realm of possibilities available to me right now and i don't want to let go of this idea that there's an objective reality you know if i turn around the kitchen table doesn't just disappear there's some objectivity to it but we can't say that it's definite that when i turn around that table is still definitely there i can't tell you that the table is definitely there when i turn around I can tell you that no one's walked in the house to take it because I can tell that no one's walked in the house because my ears are open. But I don't know that the table is, is still doing what it was and maybe the coffee has spilled on it or maybe a match is burning into it or something. You know, these are things I can't tell by if I don't observe it. And so when we're not observing things, they evolve into many different possibilities. And there's no way you can disprove that because the minute you measure it, according to quantum mechanics, it takes a definite state. So this idea of an objective, definite reality doesn't hold up. We only get a definite reality when we observe something, but then in some sense, it's not objective anymore. It's specific to us. And that's what the relational view is, saying that the world we observe is the one that collapses into a particular way for us. And the other really important piece is that you, Tonyo, are also having your reality fall into place a certain way around your choices. And when you and I meet, there's a consistency between our experiences. So I can't experience something one way and you experience it a different way and then you and I meet and have those conflict. There's this beautiful way in which the the math allows us to weave together all these individual subjective experiences into a collective that is consistent and reasonable.
0: But that isn't necessarily absolutely so because we don't necessarily know that until we actually communicate with each other, and in our interpersonal relationships, we often find ourselves having conflicting perspectives of events.
1: Yes, so I would suggest, just from my own experience, that we don't have conflicting measurement results of physical things, physical things that collapse in a certain way, like, you know, if I'm arguing with my wife about whether the folded laundry was put away or not, (laughs) You know, one of those facts is true. The fold of laundry was either put away or it wasn't put away. And we might have a different memory of it or we might have a different emotional reaction to it or what it means. Like, I didn't put the laundry away because I don't care about her. I mean, that's a possible interpretation. and We can have differing interpretations. But I would say that let's hold on to the idea that one of those facts was true and it's consistent between our different measurements. That allows us to have a physical reality, and then from there, we can start to think about, what, what's the underlying meaning that I have of that situation, and how is it helping me to grow?
0: hmm Yeah, it's probably better to stick on the meaning side of the branch that we could travel on in the tree, but there's a part of me that, that still likes to question our sense of objective re- reality, or not objective reality, but our consensus of reality and again there's there's this voice in me that says, "Well, that's a construct that's that's a culturally or it could be a culturally generated consensus construct, and that there are cultures indigenous cultures that have not had contact with the outer material world whose worldviews are radically different than ours, including in the way they." They actually see what we would consider to be the physical world. So there's a part of me that, that's fascinated by that that realm of of possibility, of variance as well.
1: I hear that, and I think it's important. I, I think it's amazing how many, when we look at the world just from the perspective of how many possibilities are unobserved, because it, the theory that I'm working with says that anything you haven't observed is, is a set of possibilities. It's able to evolve in many different ways. And that's most of the world. Like right now, each of us is observing the world, the room that we're in, or the space that we're surrounded by. And then the rest of the world and the rest of the people in it are unobserved and evolving into different branches of possibility. And when we do interact with them, one of those branches falls into place for us. And relate this is a relational view that from their perspective, I'm evolving into many different branches of possibility. And when they interact with me, one of those branches falls into place for them. And then the, the, the miracle of it is how our different branches can fall together in consistent and I think meaningful ways. This process I call meaningful history selection, where the most meaningful histories, the ones which align with the choices we're making, are more likely to fall into place. So I have a story about that that illustrates it, another synchronicity story. Wonderful. This is kind of a weird one, but I like telling it. Uh, so we'll see, see what you think. I was traveling to vacation with my family. We were driving on a road trip to go visit my wife's parents. And on this trip, it was also a time when there was this political battle going on. It was a couple of years ago. And it was a really important national debate going on and a vote that was gonna happen in Congress. And I am very passionate about contributing in what, what ways I can to what I think is making the world a better place by participating, you know, in the national dialogue around politics. So a lot of what I do is I call Congress when there's an issue I care about. And whether I'm right or wrong, I don't really know, but I'm calling, right? I'm putting energy in to the situation, I'm taking actions. And so I have a, a sense that just by participating, I'm showing up and helping untangle some of these really difficult issues. And so it's really important to me to do that. And yet at the same time, I I sometimes take on more than my share and take on responsibility that I don't need to because obviously I'm not in control of what these people are doing in Congress. So I'm on this trip, and I'm really having underlying experiences of nervousness and anxiety around what's going on in the world. And so on a road trip, I'm actually making calls from the car to Congress. And, you know, it's a little annoying for my wife and my daughter that I'm so obsessed with this thing that I'm calling from the car on our vacation. And we get down to our house where we're going and i'm i'm making phone calls from our bedroom instead of out there in the pool with my daughter you know and i, I see that this is going on i've got some dialogue in me about how i've got to i've got to really show up and, and do this work but i'm actually missing out on my own life and taking taking more responsibility than i need to and so that day my father-in-law invites me to go play golf and i'm not a golfer at all so what he really offered was for me to take a lesson So this is a synchronicity, and I'll show you why in just a minute. So I go in, I take the lesson, and I swing the golf club maybe, you know, 200 times that day, just getting my swing down. And totally new for me. I I don't realize how much work you do when you swing a golf club. It feels pretty easy, but by the end of the day, I was pretty tired. And then that night, I got home, and in the morning, I woke up, and the the vote hadn't gone the way I wanted. And I was really upset and disappointed. And at the same time, my shoulders were really starting to hurt from swinging the golf club. And by later that afternoon, my shoulders were in agony. Like I was shocked at how disabled I was. I couldn't move around the house just from swinging that golf club again and again. And here's the synchronicity, that my wife and I have this ongoing joke about the word shoulder and the way it's spelled. It's spelled like should-er. And so we joke metaphorically that the shoulders are where we carry around the weight of the things that we should do. And so here I was having this outer experience of agonizing shoulder pain that mirrored, in a sense, the inner experience that I was having of agonizing, feeling that I should be doing more to help the world out in this political battle, as if there was something more I could do. And it helped me, that reflection in the outer world of my inner world, whether it's something we can document or not, it helped me see my own pattern and helped me heal an inner feeling I had that what I was doing in the world wasn't enough and I had to keep doing more and more and more and more and more and more and And allowed me to gain a little bit of perspective on my role and what I was able to contribute to some of these situations so that I was able to find more balance in my life. And I have been able to find more balance since then. So I find synchronicity to be a, a means of helping us, narrating our lives in a way, guiding us from experience to experience in what it is that would be helpful for us to learn at, at any given moment.
0: I'm speaking with Sky Nelson Isaacs. He's a theoretical physicist, and he's the author of a fascinating new book, Living in Flow, The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World. And this is ethereal, the possibilities of a floating particle of dust here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Most of the people that I know, their lives are full of these kind of meaningful synchronicities and having a strong sense of inner alignment or meaningful alignment of our inner recognition of outer events confirming certain subjective perspectives but there are people who are very skeptical about those and and don't see don't tend to see synchronicities in their life as being meaningful or or coincidences as being meaningful why do some people perceive synchronicities in a meaningful way and and others don't
1: it's a good question and i respect both perspectives I think that synchronicities come on a whole spectrum, from really, really amazingly improbable to kind of normal and everyday. And there's still, when you look at the thread of synchronicities, like let's say, I wake up in the morning and there's not enough eggs for all of us to have breakfast, but my wife had brunch yesterday and has leftover bacon and eggs in a Tupperware that I forgot about, and you know that's. Well, great, it's a lucky break. I'm happy that we can now figure out how to make breakfast. But it's like somebody wouldn't normally register that as some amazing synchronicity. But when you look at how I think life solves problems over and over again for us, sometimes it creates problems out of the same process. So some of the problems we experience, like the printer being broken at work, just when we have a a meeting in, in five minutes and we have to print out our report, is an expression of the same process where some inner experience we're having of not caring enough to be fully prepared or to be prepared ahead of time makes us more likely to experience things that align with that same feeling of, like, this isn't that important. So I think what's powerful is to look at the circumstances of our life with an open mind and ask, what is this experience trying to show me? Is there something that this experience is trying to show me? And a lot of experiences, I think, are trying to illustrate to us some aspect of our behavior, some aspect of the choices we're making in life. Whether it's meaningful or not, it's really only something that each person can discern for themselves. And if it's not useful to you, then there's no reason to necessarily look further. I I think that we each have our own path. But I do think that there's a really important thing in the world right now, which is that knowledge of the self, knowledge of who we are, is as important as it's ever been because the choices that we're making are sort of amplified right now. You know, the number of people that are finding themselves, you know, being offensive to a group of people by saying things or doing things that hundred years ago or 20 years ago were acceptable are no longer acceptable because we are more clear about what we value and we're unwilling to tolerate people being disrespectful of each other. And so there's a way in which self knowledge is becoming just more and more crucial. And I think a crucial part of the transition we're trying to make as a, as a culture into not only a culture that has dealt with climate change and the the existential threat that we've created for ourselves, but also the existential inner threat of, I think climate change is a reflection of our difficulty dealing with deep emotions in a constructive way. And you can see this in our politics all the time every issue that we have on the table is one in which it's really they're really about people who are unable to have difficult conversations together and i think that life is sending us opportunities to grow in that regard to be able to have those more difficult conversations but we have to as individuals grow this isn't about our leaders it's about every one of us recognizing who we are and understanding ourselves better and taking the opportunity to step up and create the life that we want to create for ourselves. You know, I don't think that we can just tell our leaders to fix our problems. It actually comes down to, you know, did I choose the career that I really, really want to have? Did I choose the relationship that really supports me? Or am I showing up in that relationship in a way that is really supports that person and myself as authentic people? Becoming more authentic in the world is both about changing the outer world and about changing our own lives for the positive.
0: In the book, you mentioned something called the Heroic Imagination Project. And that line, Heroic Imagination Project, reminds me of a line from a book that I'm sort of in the middle of reading titled Emergent Strategy, which says that all activism is science fiction or visionary fiction. And speaking of activism... You say, instead of striving for solutions, we can strive for a new attitude towards ourselves that empowers us to be the change we wish to see in the world. And I think that relates a lot to what you're saying. But I'd love for you to to talk about that heroic imagination project and what that means to you and what that is.
1: It's a great project that I just know about peripherally. They're based in the Bay Area, and they do trainings on how to have a heroic mindset. It, it is a dilemma or a strange experience that we have where normal life, which is supposedly pretty good, where we, where we might be employed and have a good family and we're doing our routine, has a real sense of isolation. I think that's one of the real traumatic experiences that we're having in our culture, our modern culture, is this sense of isolation. You can trace a lot of stuff back to the feeling that we are isolated from each other. And we don't understand each other in a compassionate way, and we don't have interactions with each other that are, that are authentic. Well, then you put yourself, like, Joseph Jaworski is an author that I read on synchronicity and, and leadership. He's a great author, and he writes about a tornado that happened in his hometown when he was in college. And the tornado brought out qualities of the individuals in his community that weren't there the rest of the time. Like, dealing with the aftermath of the tornado meant showing up in a way that was just very natural and very connected and people showing up at their best selves and doing things that they never thought they could do, like going on no sleep and no food for 24 hours or whatever it was, and being compassionate and loving with people they didn't know. You know, these qualities come out, so we almost yearn for emergencies because they break us free from our isolated everyday life. And the Heroic Imagination Project, the way I understand it, is developing those skills in people and doing trainings to develop skills in people that allow them to act like they would if, if they're trying to save someone from you know a, a car accident or from a, a fire or from a tornado. But even when there's not that kind of emergency going on how do we show up authentically in public in situations that are less urgent? And I see this as really relevant because you know, I, like I'll tell you this story from just the other day when I went to the store, and you know the issue of the environment and what's happening in our environment, I think there's sort of two things that come to mind. One is the climate's changing in in terms of temperature is gradually rising, and that's extremely problematic. The other is that we have a lot of plastic. These are just two two of many issues, but there's there's all this disposable plastic that we're just throwing out. and the the real problem I see is that, this is a, an actual really urgent concern. You know, why are we using plastic on a daily basis and just throwing it out? We kind of know it doesn't go anywhere, right? It just sits there. But it's not urgent enough for us to say anything to each other about it in an everyday situation. So it's not like someone got in a car accident and we have to talk to strangers and we feel comfortable breaking down that barrier. With the issue of plastic, it's like we just go to the grocery store and, I, and I'll tell you the story. I went to the grocery store yesterday and I was getting something at the deli counter for, to make dinner and I asked him for two slices of a particular cut of meat that he was giving me. And he takes a plastic bag and uses it to grab the meat and pulls it out and says, okay, that's this much. And I said, well, I want twice that. So he goes to grab another piece and he uses a second plastic bag instead of using the first one. And he grabs another piece. And I said, wait a minute, like there's plenty of room in that first bag. Why do we need to waste the extra plastic? And I don't think we have this conversation on a regular basis because I felt like a schmuck I felt like, why am I telling this guy how to do his job? And yet, it was re- it's really important to me that I, he's, he's serving me my food and I don't want to be wasting stuff that is unnecessary. So I think that what the Heroic Imagination Project means to me is the willingness to speak about things with people that we don't know well in public about issues that are important but may not be so urgent that we feel comfortable talking about it yet. And if we wait until we feel comfortable talking about whether there's too much plastic being wasted or whatever, it's gonna be way farther down the road when it's like literally sitting on our doorsteps and the ocean starts dead and there's no fish anymore, so nobody's eating fish anymore. And you know, we don't want to wait that long. We can identify that there's issues going on in the world that need to be talked about. We need to connect with each other, whatever it is. And the key about synchronicity is that it touches us in with what we're passionate about. So I don't need anybody to think about plastic the way I do but I'm urging you to think about whatever it is you're passionate about and be authentic about that with other people.
0: Mm -hmm. So continuing in this practical way, what are the tools and building blocks with which we shape our world and engage in this co-creative relationship with the cosmos?
1: It's a really good question. I think it comes down to seeing every circumstance as a growth opportunity, walking into a situation and being willing to ask not what's wrong with this other person, but how is what they're doing teaching me something about how I can be a more whole person to myself. So let's say I have a relationship with a boss that you know, I feel that the boss is overbearing and I've had a number of relationships like that in the past and I'm really frustrated with it rather than walking in and having my own set of reactions to why are people in authority always this way? The real question that's being asked there is, what am I doing that's not allowing me to be my, my whole self in these experiences? I, I think of synchronicity as really egalitarian and that it shows up equally for everybody. So whether or not we are oppressed by a person or a people or we're not oppressed, either way, we have synchronicities showing up that can allow us to get in the flow. I think that one of the really important issues we have in our country, in the U.S. right now, is around this idea of not trusting each other and stemming from like conspiracy theories. And the conspiracy theory is just fundamentally incompatible with what I'm talking about here in this notion of, of empowerment through flow. Cause whether there's a group of people out there or not who is oppressing us, we have full access to the empowerment that this process of synchronicity can bring us. So whatever place we're at in our lives, we can start looking for opportunities to improve our situation that are not dependent on other people. Let me really clarify that I'm not saying that oppression is not real at all. I think oppression is an extremely difficult challenge that many people face every day. But if we look at our personal lives and look at you know, the oppression we might feel just from our parents or just from our spouse, just the ways in which we feel limited in what we're allowed to choose, that I think synchronicities are showing up to allow us more freedom, more flexibility to grow into a more authentic version of ourselves and speak more authentically with the people in our lives. So going to that boss and being able to have a conversation that's that's at a deeper level about how you would like to be treated in a way that doesn't necessarily trigger their own stuff. And I guess here's the key point, that when we decide that that's what we want to do, that's when I think synchronicities show up like opportunities to do it in a way that works so if i commit to myself i want to have a different relationship with my boss and then i find myself suddenly invited to the the picnic and i find myself playing wiffle ball with my boss and i hit the ball and i run to first base and my boss is there and i start having this conversation we're joking synchronicity has brought this opportunity for us to loosen up that relationship and it's not through direct confrontation necessarily it's through some other way of building more rapport does that example make sense
0: Yes. It's basically making ourselves available to new, new ways and possibilities of, of responding to issues that we find challenging and not just falling back into our old knee-jerk patterns of response.
1: Yeah, and I think my experience is that often I, when I think about the things I'm trying to learn, I get really anxious and tense, like, how am I ever going to have that conversation with my boss? It feels terrifying. And what I found over and over again is that what I think flow is built to do is find ways through that that are not creating conflict. They don't avoid conflict either, but they allow us ways to get closer to other people in our understanding, to resolve things in ways that are not something we could have really imagined in the first place.
0: Yes, and flow is a tricky thing because flow is one of those things that happens in that sweet spot in between these dynamics between control and surrender and letting go or being able to let go of, of that sense of clenching when we feel like we're in a situation that feels very limited for us and we're responding by thinking, oh, here I am again in this uncomfortable or awful situation. And perhaps in the past, we have surrendered to just giving in or giving up on it. And I would love for you to talk more about flow and the dynamics of it and how we can navigate that. And then I guess in a way there's something oxymoronic about it because flow is isn't it something that effort doesn't really lend itself to flow unless we become good at navigating our way into the sweet spot f- from wherever perspective we may find ourselves or whatever situations we may find ourselves in?
1: That's a good question. I think that it's a, a misconception that can undermine people's experience of this if they think that life should be effortless if they're doing it right. I think that flow is about that sweet spot where it, shows, it makes us show up in relationship. It doesn't mean we don't have to work or confront difficult feelings. It's about not knowing whether we need to be assertive or receptive in any given moment and then being willing to show up and see what's needed. Like, what does my boss say when I arrive to first base and playing wiffle ball? Well, maybe they're not in a critical mood. Maybe they're being really jovial. And if I come at it with the same old, like, this time I'm just gonna take charge, or this time I'm just gonna surrender. Like, if I have a preconceived notion of it, either way, I'm not gonna be able to respond effectively to what's being presented to me. So, I have a quote here that speaks to one of the aspects that I think can often keep us from being in flow. People often have told me that avoiding pain is one of the things that keeps them from being in flow. And I think pain is one of those things that is helping us heal. Like when we feel pain it's because something has happened that we're wounded from. And oftentimes flow is leading us through that pain in order to heal ourselves. So. This is a quote from the book about grief. Our grief allows us to let go of what is holding us back from living fully authentic lives. Our sorrow and the outrage that may come with it can light a fire within us. We don't all need to be activists. We don't all need to follow an outward path of political or social change. Rather, allowing those authentic feelings into our hearts can give us the courage to be honest right here in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own places of work or worship. When we authentically feel our emotions, we are no longer willing to let life go by without speaking up into the microphone. We are also no longer willing to let external standards determine who we are. An important first step is allowing ourselves to feel the grief, the grief of loss. And when we open up to our own feelings in an authentic way, I think it allows circumstances to start to flow into our lives, which help us to heal those experiences, and then then to have different experiences moving forward, because we're not resisting. It's often that resistance that we feel like, I don't want to go there, that can stop us from experiencing flow in general, because if we stop the flow in one part of our lives, it's just stopping the whole thing.
0: And there's often a prevailing fear that what we're experiencing, the unpleasant thing that we're experiencing in this moment will never end. So how do we deal with that? I mean, you you talked about pain, and there's an approach towards pain, particularly chronic pain, that you lean into it, which is essentially what you're talking about. But how does that work?
1: Well, everyone's pain is unique, and I haven't dealt with some of the things that a lot of people have dealt with, so I don't want to speak about other people's experiences. I haven't dealt with a lot of Chronic pain, for instance, except in my own small ways. So I don't know, you know, I don't have a solution for any of that. My experiences in my own life have really centered around the types of emotional pain that I've held on to from my childhood, and I don't know if it was a certain portion of my childhood. It's just different points in in growing up, and anything before right now is what I would call my childhood. You know, places where I formed patterns in my thinking that served me at the time in order to make me feel safe but now are limiting me and so for me there's a real power in developing an understanding of the circumstance that made me decide to to be this way you know like when i was in elementary school i remember having a lot of experiences of feeling left out feeling not really liked by people by my peers and I learned to cover up who I was, and, which, like, for example, just not saying what I think, not being willing to be honest with what I think about a situation. And I learned to do that really, really well in order to try and say what I thought other people wanted me to say in order to be accepted. And it didn't actually work that well, but I was a kid, so I didn't realize it. first of all, it wasn't getting me what I wanted. <laughs> second of all, it wasn't making me feel good. But it seemed like it was the only safe Because if I did speak up about what I thought, people would tease me. That was my perception. And so now as an adult, especially seeing my daughter who's around the same age, go through some of these same questions of self-doubt, I can see the patterns that I had as a kid more clearly, and I can see how they're stopping me from being successful, you know, doing my professional work, making me question my own choices or my own opinions about things making me not courageous enough to speak up about things that I care about like I would have when I was in fifth grade. And so learning, connecting the dots between what I'm doing now and my behaviors and you know, the, the synchronicity of my daughter being the same age and, and having experiences, you know, being able to watch her experiences and instead of trying to change her, to look at myself and say, wow, I had that experience and it hurt me and I'm still living out the pain of that experience from when I was in fifth grade. So how can I, learn from this experience, not try and change my daughter's experience, but change my experience, that's the thing I really can do. And I think it will have a great impact on my life and maybe translate into her as well, just because I'll be a model for her.
0: Yes. As you were saying that, that was my sense of it as well. And what you were describing about the challenges you experienced growing up, I think is extremely common in our culture and it was definitely the most prevalent issue that I was dealing with. The wonderful yeah. gift that <laughs> I our just children. That for
1: a minute. <laughs> yeah.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And our children and everybody around us, when we see other people going through that, that experience, it gives us that wonderful opportunity to reflect back upon that experience in the past. And for me, it took so many years of very difficult inner work to unravel that to the point where I can be much more myself, much more authentic. But now I have so much more experience of knowing that that there is so much more space and possibility to be and to respond in other ways.
1: Yeah, and I think it's beautiful how it seems like the world is so complicated and yet basically I'm still working on the same stuff I was working on in fifth grade.
0: And we're you all know, working yeah. on the same things. And what you were saying about just being a model, I mean, when we are authentically ourselves in, in that way, we are providing a model regardless of whether other people get it or not. I think on some level we're all getting it. We're all being affected by everything around us.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think that I, keep from, I would come back to this lesson, what do we take from all this? And it comes back to what can I learn from this experience? And one of the things that can happen for me is like like I have an experience with my boss, like we were talking about, where I feel minimized or like it's just unrespected and oppressed or whatever it is. And I've found that I need to have a willingness to see that there's some deeper thing happening that doesn't actually have to do with my boss. Like I might want to focus on how to resolve things with my boss and have the right conversation and such and such. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. But sometimes I can also... See inside that, oh, yeah, this isn't about my boss at all. This is about me and my mom or me and my dad or me and my brother from when we were young and the way that I learned to cope. And I'm doing the same thing here. So that's where I think the power of living in flow is when we can see this reflection in the external world of our own inner world and our past inner world as well. These patterns that show up symbolically in our lives are really educational, I think.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So the, the world around us, the cosmos, is the multifaceted mirror for us all the time.
1: Yes, and what it's reflecting is the inner experience. Exactly. So, yeah. so I, I talk about in the book anticipated qualitative experience. We are anticipating our experiences all the time. So I, I said earlier the fundamental thing that we have, that we know of in life, is experience. Even before physics, even before being conscious, we know that there's an experience that we're each having. And those experiences are qualitative in the sense that, let's say I would have the experience of playing basketball at my daughter's school with her after hours, or I have the experience of playing wiffle ball in the front driveway with her, or I I have the experience of riding a bike with her down to the BART station, the public transit station and back. All of those are three very different physical situations that have the same qualitative nature, which is she and I spending quality time together doing exercise. So there's this qualitative nature that's really important and the anticipation part is the part that leads to, I think leads to the meaningful history selection or the synchronicity where we're constantly anticipating the types of experiences we want to have. If I think about my boss, I might automatically anticipate like a negative interaction. Like I'm imagining and feeling and not just in my brain but in my whole body. I'm like tensing up and having a a gut reaction to what it's gonna be like to interact with them. And the anticipated part is that I'm actually connecting to those future experiences I'm imagining having. And this is all possible because, just to dive into the physics for a minute, I look at the idea of timelessness. And specifically, the way into that is to look at light. And light is a timeless entity in a sense. If you look at anything from the lens of special relativity, you find that time slows down as you move faster and faster to the speed of light. And the equations say that as you move at the speed of light, time stops altogether. But nothing can move at the speed of light, so we don't really worry about that. But light moves at the speed of light. And so the question of what's happening when light moves through the universe, let's say light is traveling from a distant galaxy to us and it takes two million light years to do that, what's really happening for the light? Well, time can't pass for the light. It can't register the leaving of the galaxy and the arriving at Earth as two separate events. So there's this way in which there's a timelessness to that description that's called a null interval or it's related to the null interval in physics. For those of you out there who are physicists and listening. <laughs> and so light is timeless in this particular sense, and it leads to a branching tree of possibilities. You know, this is a few steps forward. Uh, a branching tree of possibilities that is timeless. and So all the different possible outcomes of a situation, like how the boss interacts with me in the future, are timelessly, represented on this informational way on this branching tree of possibilities. So getting back to the anticipated qualitative experience, when I anticipate an experience in my gut, like I'm feeling what it's going to feel like to have this experience, I'm actually interacting with the branches of this tree and the future branches, which have that experience metaphorically are going to grow an apple. They're going to become heavier. When they become heavier, the branches that align with my core felt experience are going to become more likely. So by anticipating experiences, which I'm doing all the time, whether I like it or not, I'm actually making certain branches of the tree heavier than others. And those are the ones that align with my choices and are more meaningful to me and are more likely to happen.
0: So when you're talking about anticipating, are you talking about how our imagination and our feelings are working together to create these experiences? metaphorical apples
1: yes so like a really easy example would be if I mention the word coffee and your listeners right now are thinking about coffee because I just said it but that's not all that's happening we're not robots that just mentally picture an image of a coffee cup we also feel it just by saying the word coffee because coffee has such an impact on our emotions it makes us feel more awake and more animated, maybe more cut off for me. It makes me more cut off from my feelings, it makes me more alert and maybe sometimes reactive. All of those things are felt in the body. And so when I say the word coffee, you automatically think it and feel it at the same time and have a little bit of the effect of coffee just by thinking about coffee.
0: And also you could be imagining the taste of the coffee.
1: Right. I don't have evidence for this, but I think it's probably well documented that When you think of coffee, the part of your brain that processes taste buds probably lights up a little bit because it's imagining what it's like to experience coffee, even if it's not actually experiencing coffee. And so when we do that, that process in our body is actually reaching out into the future branches of the tree of possibilities. And the branches which have that experience, whether it's black tea or coffee or eating dark chocolate or whatever, those branches are more likely to happen. So someone might offer you a bar of chocolate at lunch.
0: What a fascinating commingling of future anticipation with past experience.
1: Yeah, and I think the, the key is that we're not consciously doing this. We're doing it all the time. We can't help it. Right. We're constantly thinking about what we want to have happen or what we don't want to have happen, like with the case of our boss. like We don't want to have a bad experience, and yet somehow through our choices, because we're anticipating experiences in which we're set up to have a negative experience, those situations emerge And then we're challenged to not react to it in the way that we always have in the past.
0: And when you were talking about how light, when it's traveling at the speed of light, it has no experience of difference between its starting point and its destination, reminded me of of the direct experience of presence.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, this is a point where I try and be as, clear as I can about where the physics we know stops and and the metaphors begin but I think that there is ultimately a connection between those two things just like you said and it's not something that I can really prove or anything like that but it's my experience too that there's a a way in which conscious experience can be timeless and that's really what flow is when people talk about (laughs) being in flow in sports Mm -hmm. they're not aware of time passing they are completely engaged and engrossed in what they're doing and there's a sense of timelessness. I'm not saying that that's equivalent to you know what the photon is registering as it travels through space, but I do try and do the rigorous work to start to build those bridges because I think that there is a lot of crossover and, and maybe some equivalents. This null interval concept is worth exploring a little bit, you know from a point of view of a photon, we can't even talk about a point of view, right? Right. Light is, is not a living thing, so I don't want to be anthropomorphic and talk about it having a perspective or an experience. So I use the word register to say the light registers leaving the galaxy far away, and it registers ending at a telescope on planet Earth, and there's no distinguishing between those events for the light. And that's because when you look at the interval between those points, what what Special Relativity does is it talks about the interval between two events. And the interval between the galaxy Andromeda and the planet Earth is like 2.5 million light years. And the time interval is 2.5 million years. So the distance is 2.5 million light years, and the time it takes to travel that distance is 2.5 million years. And because those numbers are the same, they cancel out, and you get zero for the actual total null interval. In contrast, the opposite example would be if a spaceship was traveling between Andromeda and here, the distance is still 2.5 million light years. But the time it would take, because it's traveling a lot slower than light would, the time it would take might be 20 million years. And so those two don't cancel out, and you you get an interval that's some number. But for light, the interval always cancels out, because it always takes exactly the right amount of time to get someplace based on traveling at the speed of light. And that's because time has shrunk down all the way to zero. I mean, it's related to that fact. That's jumping outside of the way we normally talk about it in physics, and that's really the subject of a lot of my research and the papers that I'm working on is trying to formalize that. It's something that we've known about for a long time, but I don't think we've examined it fully and rigorously enough to get all the juice out of the orange, so to speak.
0: Is there anything more that you can contribute to that? right now that would make sense to us?
1: Well, the focus of my interest has been for a long time on on holograms, like we talked about earlier. The first experience I had with holograms was writing a program in college to do a Fourier transform. This is the transformation we talked about earlier that underlies holograms. And I did a lab in college where we created a hologram. And the beauty of light is that in its natural state, it is, I'm going to use this word, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's holistic. The the holographic space, as we talked about the the cake batter, right? you've got all these different elements of cake batter that are separate from the point of view of you and I, but when you mix them in the cake batter, you get to this alternate representation, which is the holographic representation. And in the holographic representation, you just have batter in which the eggs are intermixed with the milk and the flour completely. So in that representation, there's this non-locality where Andromeda, you can't think of it as two and a half million light years away because there's no space even defined in this representation. This representation is actually a representation in terms of energy and wavelength and momentum. So space and time are completely mixed out of the batter completely when looking at it from this perspective. And so from from this perspective, there is no distance between Andromeda and here. The whole concept of Space and time doesn't exist here. And so it brings up questions of non-locality, which is good because we already have experiments that demonstrate that non-locality is absolutely true. We know that to be a fact, or at least there's, there's different ways to interpret the data, but it all has to do with undermining our local realism point of view. And the holographic perspective really supports a lot of those concepts in that it removes space and time from the equation altogether and mixes them up like that cake batter into what can create a cake. The problem with the cake batter analogy is you can't unmix it. Whereas with the holographic concept, you can go back to the space-time and see the world as all these separate objects. So from the space-time perspective, everything is separate and separated by certain distances, and we're all isolated from each other. But in the holographic representation, we're not isolated from each other. We're intermixed. And I think that has really important implications, you know, at least metaphorically, that we can take. There is a perspective from which we are not isolated or separate from each other.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about non locality, like starting with the Big Bang, where everything in this universe was originally compressed into some unfathomable point. And then theoretically speaking, there was the Big Bang in which it all exploded into what we now experience as the universe, non-locality. Maybe you should describe what it is, because you, you'll probably do it in a much more economical way than
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> from let's that perspective with, that, I, that I began
1: it. Let's start with the concept of entanglement. Entanglement is this idea that's been verified experimentally and is actually the central technology of quantum computation, which is a real field of development, in technology right now. Entanglement is because you have a theory of quantum mechanics which describes entities like electrons as superpositions of their possible states. A superposition is like, remember those translucent transparencies we used to use in school in the 80s and 70s and 60s where we'd, we'd layer them on each other and you could see one image, but then if you layer another transparency on the projector, you'd see another image on top of that to be superimposed on each other so quantum states are like that where you can superimpose them and of course when you when you actually experience one of them you only get one of those transparencies so that's what's called collapse and it's not really understood what's really going on there there's a lot of theories for it but it's not resolved and entanglement results from that something that einstein and podolsky and rosen pointed out in 1930s they wrote this proposal that you could take Two particles that are generated from the same source so that you know that they have matching properties, like they're both polarized in the same direction. It's like two photons that are both have their electric fields pointing up and down. And then you can send them off to different locations that are separated in physical space. And you can do a measurement on them and you can find naturally that they have the same properties because they started with the same properties. But then there's this other property of quantum mechanics that when you measure something in a different way that's not compatible with the first way, you actually get, again, a superposition of possibilities that scrambles the possible outcomes. And when you do this, there's an element that is fundamentally random. So if I take a light particle and I measure it in a different way, like I measure its rotational polarization, uh, I'm forgetting the word, spherical polarization, uh, and you would get a a mix of possibilities and what number you get would be random. And it turns out that the other particle is going to be randomized, but in the exact same way to match the first particle. And this is where entanglement is showing up because it's like taking two dice together. They say they both show a one on them and you put them in separate boxes and you carefully shake them across the country from each other. And they both still show one on them. If you open the box right now, you'd see a one on top of the die and you'd be like, well, of course it matches the other one because I just put them there like that. But if they're entangled and I shake the boxes, I shake my box in New York and you shake your box in California and you open the boxes, if they're entangled, they would show a different number but they would match. So they would show a four instead of a one but both boxes would show a four or both boxes would show a six. And so entanglement is saying these particles are in somehow one particle that's showing the same property even when we mix them up. And this illustrates this idea of non-locality which means that The two particles are separated by a distance, so they're not local to each other. They're not in their local neighborhood. And yet they're influencing each other across that distance somehow. And people often try and say, well, there's some kind of signal traveling between them. They want to make it physical. Like there's some physical connection between them from New York to California. And it's been demonstrated that there's not a physical connection. You know, you can put it in a chamber that blocks all the electromagnetic radiation, and it it still happens. So there's no physical connection and yet there is a correlation between them so that there's some kind of non-locality.
0: And Einstein called that spooky action at a distance. Right. And what I was alluding to with the Big Bang, that is it accurate to consider that everything in this universe is entangled in that way?
1: I, I find that there's a lot I don't understand about the Big Bang theory. I find it to be abstract in a way that that is difficult to wrap my brain around. But I think what you're pointing to is that if all the particles in the universe originated from a single cause then they are all entangled. We're all physically entangled with everything else in the universe in some way. And I I understand that reasoning and I I don't think it's wrong or right necessarily. Another way to look at it is from the holographic perspective space and time are, are mixed out of the equation altogether. And so when we describe something where you are and me where I am, in physical space, we're separated by a long distance. But in the Fourier transformed space and the holographic space, there's no such separation. And we look at what are our spectra. And I find that really fascinating. And I hope someday to be able to tie that into the same concepts of non-locality. And it doesn't require that we necessarily trace our particles back to the Big Bang and say, well, once upon a time, we were part of the same stardust, I think it just doesn't require that same reasoning, although it could be true still.
0: But it could be that we're all part of the same holographic field or quantum field.
1: Yeah, there's just one of them. I mean, there's the holographic representation of the cosmos, and then there's the, the space-time representation of the cosmos. It's all shared.
0: And when you separate out time and space, then that field actually would encompass all time all, or all possible Time and all possible unfolding through time as in your, your metaphor of, of the overlay of transparencies, an infinite right. th- overlay. This
1: is, This is one of the difficult things in physics right now is we actually do this math all the time and we actually see the world this way, at least from the space perspective. So when you study crystals, for instance, if you want to study the crystal structure of like a quartz crystal, The way it's done is you shine x-rays at it, and those x-rays have a certain wavelength, and when they scatter off of the crystals, the the atoms in the crystal, they form a pattern on the photographic sheet on the other side, because they get diffracted in a certain way. And that pattern is actually the Fourier transform of the physical shape of the structures of the crystal. So if you you do the inverse Fourier transform on the, the photograph, you actually see essentially a picture of the atoms in the crystal. It's a, it's a beautiful experiment that's been done for almost, you know, 90 years I think.
0: And that's because crystals have an alignment.
1: Right. Because Fourier transforms are picking up patterns. That's what it, really what they're good at. So the crystal has a very regular pattern and so this Fourier transform it creates is very structured and it's very easy to pick it apart and see it. And so this is something physicists do all the time. They they conceive of the Fourier transform of space as a real thing. They, they, they work in what's called K-space or momentum space for crystals, for instance, and other things as well. It shows up in all sorts of different fields of study, chemistry and, and physics and quantum cryptography. But what's hard to do conceptually is to do the same thing for time, to say I'm going to combine all of the time components or the time behavior of this system and look at all, you know, I'm going to say that the the spectrum of this object has to do with the behavior of the electron over infinity of time. They do that with space all the time, but with time it becomes much more conceptually difficult because we think that we live in the present moment and our own conceptions about what that means get in the way. We think that we can't access the future in the past because I can't predict the stock market tomorrow. And so clearly the future and the past, you know, seemingly can't have an impact on what's going on right now. And so this holographic concept becomes really difficult for people to make sense of when you start dealing with time in the same way that you already deal with space. But we know that we have to do that because that's what we've learned from all the advances in relativity is that time and space are essentially the same type of field or the same type of thing.
0: And they're not separate.
1: Right. They, they can transform into each other in special relativity. So they're not different from each other. They're not the same, but they're not, not exactly different either.
0: And essentially, it's just a conceptualization.
1: Yeah, so the difficulty for part of my work is showing that, look, we really do have to look at the Fourier transform and the holographic perspective, not only from space, which is kind of easy. You know, you accept that there's some non-locality between, you know, the different parts of space. Maybe we can accept that. But to accept that there's non-locality in time really goes against our common experience. And... I think challenges us to really understand what is, what is quantum mechanics trying to tell us? That was, by the way, the name of a, a paper I love by David Merman. What is quantum mechanics trying to tell us? And that's really the moral of, I think, how we should do science and also how to think about synchronicity showing up in your life. <laughs> you know, what is this experience trying to tell me?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful correlation, you bringing it all together. <laughs> and we have five minutes to go
1: well, I'd love to let people know about what I'm doing. Please. So my book came out three weeks ago, and it's available at livinginflowbook.com. And I've developed some training materials around it. So I work with groups on how to see the opportunities showing up in their lives, see synchronicity that might be passing them by, see how it shows up for them personally, working both at a personal level and also at a professional level, because I think this is relevant in both cases so I do that kind of training and I I speak on a regular basis and I'd love to be invited into your listeners communities if they have a space where they'd like to have this information shared and you can find me again at livinginflowbook.com just contact me through the website and I'm also on Facebook quite a lot and on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn
0: and the book again is Living in Flow the Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World
1: And I'll be traveling to various places. I'm going to Canada next month, to Vancouver Island. I'm going to Michigan and Indianapolis in the summer. And I'll be around the Bay Area doing a number of book talks in the next few months as well. So you can stay in touch with me, especially on Facebook, where I have my event calendar or on my website.
0: Thanks. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. This has been a wonderful experience, something I've been wanting to have the opportunity to do for years.
1: Well, it's really fun to talk about for me, and I appreciate being able to do both the scientific aspect and the human experiential aspect, because I think they're both really connected. And if I can leave your listeners with a message, it's that I think the external challenges that we face as a community are perfect for the types of internal change that we need to make and learning to go for what we want in life, to believe in ourselves and find out what's holding us back inside of ourselves heal whatever wounds we can find there and become really whole and really diving into life wholeheartedly, going for what we believe in. And I think when we do that, the problems we're facing with political gridlock and not agreeing with each other on basic issues and whatever other environmental issues that we're facing, I think all those things start to resolve themselves when we're able to live in alignment with our own lives and with each other.
0: Yes. Beautifully said. Sky Nelson Isaacs. The book is "Living in Flow: The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World." Why don't you give them your website?
1: www.livinginflowbook.com.
0: Again, thank you so much. This has been truly wonderful.
1: Thanks, Tonya. I really appreciate it.
0: Take care. Bye bye.
1: Take care. Bye bye.
0: And that's it for this special magical mystery tour, Ethereal, The Possibilities of a Floating Particle of Dust.